The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope, as of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. So we'll take a few minutes of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have to gather together and study your word. We thank you that we have such a clear revelation of who you are and what you expect from us and a clear revelation of your grace and all that you have done for us, that it is not our salvation and our spiritual life is not based on who we are or what we have done, but is based completely on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we would be challenged and encouraged by the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study on Daniel chapter 5, which is one of the most remarkable episodes in the Scripture and in Daniel, one that is well known and from which we get the phrase, the handwriting on the wall. And we're going to get to that tonight. So we're in Daniel chapter 5. Now last time we observed the contrast and the reactions between the unbelievers and the believers. We have seen that the Believer here does not have, or the believer has stability and poise and calm because of the doctrine in his soul. The unbelievers present, which is Belshazzar and everybody else, is falling apart and they're going through a complete meltdown because they don't understand what's going on and the potential is before they even understand the meaning of the words that just mysteriously have appeared up on the wall, before they know their meaning, they, they sense the importance of these words and that they spell out something that indicates their collapse. So let's look at verse 8. We see them trying to solve the problem. The, mysteriously, the fingers of a man's hand had emerged and written on the wall in verse 5, and the king grew, king's face grew pale, his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. That's Belshazzar's meltdown. And then in verse 7, The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. This was his cabinet, made up of all of his various advisors. And he spoke. the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will, will be clothed with purple, and have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Now, one of the reasons, we're not sure why they had difficulty reading what was on the wall. There are three 
are four possible explanations. One of the more likely is that normally Hebrew is written from left to right. So that would read from left across this way. And if these words were written from the top down instead of from left to right, as I have them on the uh, overhead, then that would be somewhat uh, mysterious. But even so, if you know the language, and most of you don't know Hebrew, so you don't know what it means left to right, right to left, top to bottom, or bottom to top. But if you know a language, you can make sense of it pretty quickly, even if you see the letters uh, in an unusual order. Your mind fixes on them and attaches a pattern to them. So it's very likely that it wasn't simply the fact that they were written in some odd manner, but that the form of the words, as we will see, was somewhat unusual. And so that meant that the meaning of the inscription was unclear, wasn't immediately obvious. And so the cabinet members who looked at this were just completely stymied. And they knew that this was too important for them to just guess. So they had to have some sort of solution. Verse 8, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. By this time, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, uh, Belshazzar, has run out of gimmicks to try to figure out just exactly what is going on. He knows he's at the end of the rope. The Persian army is outside the walls of Babylon, and he suspects probably that this uh, miraculously appearing message on the wall has something to do with him, and something to do with the army outside the wall. Belshazzar has run out of time. He has heard the gospel again and again. He's had opportunities to respond. Remember I said that, that though this is 539 B.C. and Nebuchadnezzar had died in 562 B.C., that's a difference of 23 years. Belshazzar by this time is probably in his late 30s. What we know of Belshazzar is that Three years after his father Nabonidus came to the throne, Belshazzar was co-regent. And so if you put all the numbers together, it seems as though Belshazzar was probably in his middle to late teens in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar passed out his announcement to the entire empire uh, proclaiming the greatness of God. When, Bel- when uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent out his evangelistic tract, uh, Belshazzar was alive. Belshazzar heard the gospel then. Belshazzar knew who Daniel was. He would have heard the stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and yet he had rejected all that. And time and time again, God gives everybody the grace, the opportunity to respond to the gospel and to respond to doctrine. But sooner or later, there comes a point when God lowers the boom. And there's always grace Grace, grace before judgment. And at this point, even at this point, Belshazzar can respond. He's going to get one more opportunity to respond, one more opportunity to turn from his arrogance and to respond to God. It's too late to save the empire, but he has one more opportunity for salvation. And even then, because of fear and arrogance, he is going to do just the opposite of what his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar did. So he is... Faced with the inevitable, irrevocable judgment of God, and he is scared to death about this. Now, when it says that in verse uh, 
9, or verse 8, excuse me, that when these wise men came in, they were already there. They were part of the party. There's a thousand people at this uh, orgy that's going on, and most of his counselors and cabinet members were present. So when it says that they came in, what that means is that they gathered together. They moved up to the front of the room. Everybody immediately was sobered up once they saw this writing magically appear on the wall. And they all moved up to the front when Belshazzar called for them. And now it's time for them to go into action. And yet they have no no answers whatsoever. But in contrast to their failures, we have the entrance of the queen in verse 10. This is his mother, Nitocris, and Nitocris is um, the youngest daughter, was probably one of the youngest daughters of Nebuchadnezzar. She is a believer, and she was fully aware of everything that Daniel had taught, and she shows tremendous stability and has poise under pressure. Real poise under pressure only comes from doctrine in the soul because you know God's perspective, even in the midst of the most incredible crisis you can have inter, inner calm and inner peace simply because of the doctrine that you know, because you know God is in control no matter how badly things might appear to be out of control. It's also interesting that several times in Scripture we can, we can think of, of women such as Deborah in the book of Judges, uh, women in the Scriptures who uh, focus on doctrine when the men around them are falling apart, And so she is a model of what all the great women of the Bible are pictured to be. She is stable, and she brings to the table something that causes the men to focus on something that goes beyond the situation and beyond the problem at hand. Herodotus, who is considered one of the first historians, although that ignores the history written in the Bible, he was a Greek and he described some of the things about her. She was a remarkable woman, and she had a fantastic sense of humor. And she let that, uh, that did not dull as she got older. And when she was going to die, she wanted to play a joke on the, on the rulers of the nation. And by that time, she realized that the rulers, especially by then it was the Persians, she realized they were very materialistic, so she decided to play a joke on them. Herodotus tells us it was this same princess, Nitocris, by whom a remarkable deception was planned. She had her tomb constructed in the upper part of one of the principal gateways of the city, high above the heads of the passers-by with this inscription cut on. So it's set up on a walkway where everybody walked by could see it. And on there she had this inscription cut in that said, If there be one among my successors on the throne of Babylon who is in want of treasure... Let him open my tomb and take as much as he chooses. Not, however, unless he be truly in want, for it will not be for his good. Well, her tomb remained untouched until Darius came to the throne. And to him it seemed like a monstrous thing that he should be unable to use one of the gates in Babylon and that there should be a large sum of money inside that casket lying around idle. So he's the one who... Uh, pried his way into the tomb and opened it up to get the money. But instead of the money, all he found was a corpse and a note that read, Had thou not been insatiate of treasure and careless how you got it, you would not have opened the tomb of the dead. So she just had her little practical joke on him, and there was no money at all. Just wanted to show him up for being the kind of greedy individual he was. 
So she had a good sense of humor that she took with her even into the grave. So she walks into the banquet hall. She is upright, stately, and her very presence probably caused those around her to calm down and to become quiet, waiting for her to say something. We read in verse 10, The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. So there's been a hush. There's, as he sent for whoever, whatever counselors weren't there, when the handwriting first appeared on the wall, word got to her that something unusual had happened. And when she comes in and she comes up to the queen, and it's only a mother can do. Even with a king, she says, O king, live forever, which is the normal address of politeness to a ruler. She says, don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. In other words, get a hold of yourself, kid. You know, straighten up. Don't show that you're afraid. Maintain poise in front of all the, um, all the people, all the citizens. You can't let everybody see how scared you are. Straighten up. And then she offers a solution in verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Now, that's really a mistranslation. The problem is that almost every translator of the Scripture assumes that since she's a, uh, a Chaldean, that she's not a believer. She's going to talk in terms of the pagan Chaldeans. But the term here is the same term. It's the, the Aramaic form of Ruach. And then it's Elohim, not Elohim. Elohim with an M is the Hebrew. Elohim is the uh, Aramaic. And it's Ruach Elohim, Spirit of God. And so she is referring to God by his generic name. She's not using it as a plural. And she is saying, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the Spirit of God. She recognizes that Daniel is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, as he was in the Old Testament, and that God the Holy Spirit is revealing eternal truth uh, and uh, through Daniel. So she says, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the... Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and in the days of your father, that is your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of God, Elohim again, like the wisdom of God was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, literally, or actually your grandfather here, because the word uh, in Hebrew, Av, can mean father, grandfather, great-grandfather, descendant. There's about eight different meanings. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, your grandfather the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. So he was the head of all of the cabinet. He was the chief of state for your, for your grandfather because of his tremendous wisdom and insight. Then she goes on in verse 12 to say, This was because an extraordinary spirit... Knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, that is, puzzles, conundrums, difficulties, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. I want you to notice the name by which Nidocris refers to Daniel. She calls him not by his Chaldean name, Belteshazzar, which would invoke the, uh, the renaming of the Jews when they came into Chaldea, but she calls him Daniel, mostly. And that indicates she recognizes him. She probably knew him personally and knew him by his Jewish name. And this, again, indicates that this is not just some formal recognition, 
but that she knows who Daniel is and is a believer. It's very likely that Daniel is the one who taught her as a young woman about the Lord and taught her doctrine. So she reminds Nebuchadnezzar of who Daniel is and what made Daniel the kind of person he is. This is seen in a couple of Hebrew words or Aramaic words that are used here. He is said to have an extraordinary spirit. This is the Aramaic Ruach Yatira. Ruach Yatira, which means an exceeding, an extraordinary, a preeminent, or an outstanding spirit. And here it's not referring to the Holy Spirit but it talks about Daniel's mental attitude. It talks about Daniel's mind, his abilities, his capabilities. The word spirit is used a number of different ways in Scripture. It can refer to human spirit. It can refer to the Holy Spirit. It can refer just in as a generic term for uh, the immaterial part of man. And here it is referring to Daniel's attitude. That's part of the one of the meanings of spirit. New Testament uses the Greek pneuma, in the same way. It talks about a person who, if they're bitter, it says they have a spirit of bitterness or an attitude of bitterness. If they're angry, they have a spirit of anger or an attitude of anger. It doesn't necessarily talk about some immaterial being. So when it says a spirit, an extraordinary spirit, it's talking about his, his mentality, his attitude. He has knowledge and insight. The word for knowledge is from the Hebrew yada which is comparable to the Greek gnosis. He has a tremendous amount of academic knowledge and understanding. And then just as in the New Testament period in the church age, when we study the Word and we, we, we learn it as gnosis, as academic knowledge, and that it is transferred into our soul and into the heart, the mentality, the innermost mentality of our soul as epinosis, the Hebrew, or rather the Aramaic word that's used here is sakel, Sakletanu, Sakletanu, and it means insight, wisdom, prudence, or success. And it indicates the high level of uh, Daniel's uh, ability and capabilities. He had insight, wisdom, prudence, and he was successful because of the doctrine that is in, that is in his soul. So Daniel comes in, verse 13, and Daniel is brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? And then Belshazzar is going to go on and he's going to uh, try to uh, uh, encourage Daniel. He's going to try to uh, uh, convince Daniel and bribe him and try to flatter him into giving uh Belshazzar, what he wants to hear. But Daniel has an important principle to communicate here. He is going to communicate to Belshazzar that it is the God of Israel who is the only real God, the only true God, whose goblets and whose, whose um, uh, dishes and bowls they were just desecrating so easily. It is that God, the God of Israel, who they had assumed was just some local deity, just another god among all the other gods in the pantheon of the ancient world. What, they, what Daniel is trying to communicate is to Belshazzar it is that because you have touched his sacred vessels, because you have desecrated that which came out of the temple in Jerusalem, at this point, God is going to judge you. It's not just chance 
It's not just happenstance that they've just hauled all the, the goblets and bowls out of the temple out of storage and began to use them and profane them, that uh, this occurs. The handwriting appears as soon as they began to desecrate this, uh, these bowls and dishes that came out of the temple. Verse 14, we see Belshazzar's flattery. Now, I've heard about you. See, he didn't seem to remember too much when Nidocris is talking to him, but apparently it, it caused him to remember a few things more about Daniel that he mentions. He says, Now, I've heard about you that a spirit of the gods, the spirit, again, it should be translated the spirit of God, that a spirit, the spirit of God is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now, he says, the wise men, the conjurers, were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. You'd think that um, Daniel might be thinking this is a little deja vu at this point. He's reminding him of the time he's come into Nebuchadnezzar twice to uh, fill in the gap where the cabinet members could not inter- properly interpret those dreams. So it's one more situation like that. They fail. The human viewpoint can never solve man's problems, and human viewpoint can never produce insight into the plan of God. It must come only from direct revelation from God. And then Belshazzar says, But I personally have heard about you, that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple which is a sign of royalty, wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and again, an indication of his rank and privilege in the nation. This necklace of gold would have carried an insignia on it that indicated his rank in the kingdom. And he said, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, I want you to notice how this is translated, because if you look at the Old King James Version, it would indicate that he is the third in rank in the kingdom. But remember what the, how, how the kingdom is structured here. You, you have Nabopolassar, who is now king in absentia, because he's sort of gone off to his archaeological digs to leave uh, his son, Bel, Belshazzar, in charge. And they have a... Um, they, they are both ruling the kingdom. And what Belshazzar is saying here is not that you're going to be third in rank, but you're going to come on as the third in a triumvirate. There will be three of us ruling the kingdom, not just two. And so he is offering Daniel to be the third ruler, the third of three in the kingdom. And I want you to notice Daniel's response because his response shows that he's not swayed by the flattery of Belshazzar or the promise of rewards. He has his, his focus on the real priorities, which is serving God. Verse 17, Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. In other words, I'm going to fulfill my job here, and it doesn't have anything to do with your flattery. It doesn't have anything to do with your rewards. His answer demonstrates the quality, the integrity of Daniel's soul. It's an integrity that comes about only because you've reached spiritual maturity. You don't have that kind of integrity just right off the bat. It comes from his uh, long 
period of time studying the word and applying the word. He is telling Belshazzar that his motivation in life isn't rooted in things in time. It's not based on what he gets. It's not based on the details of life. It's not based on his promotion. It's based on his relationship with God. He basically tells Belshazzar, you can offer me anything you want to offer me, but that doesn't have anything to do with the task at hand. And besides, Daniel knows that whatever he's offered is meaningless because the next day somebody else is going to be in charge. But Daniel shows here that he is a grace-oriented believer. He's doing this not because of what he's going to get. Too often the world system works on what we're going to get. I'm going to do whatever it is I'm going to do, but, but I'm doing it for remuneration. I'm doing it for what I'm going to get out of it. But he shows that he's grace-oriented. He also shows that his focus is not in time. See, he's not, he's not focusing at all on temporal rewards or on time. So he's focusing on his position in God's plan. So he has a personal sense of eternal destiny, and he has a mastery of the details of life. He's focused on the future. He's focused on his role as it relates to eternity, not to time. And it's because of that that even if his life hangs in the balance, that's not an issue. And as a believer, we can only live as if life doesn't matter if we're focused on eternity. We can only handle the tremendous crises whenever life is threatened, whenever we're in a situation, whether it's in combat, whether it's living in a, under a, a situation where we're threatened by terrorism, whatever it may be. As a believer, we can only live above that if we have a personal sense of our eternal destiny where we realize where we're headed and we realize that this is just a temporary abiding place. And while we're here, we're to serve the Lord and, our, and our, the time and manner and place of our death is in the hands of the Lord. And it is only, uh, and the Lord alone is going to determine that. It's not up to us. Then we can relax and we can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where no matter what the threat is, no matter what the uh, punishment might be, it doesn't matter because our focus isn't on what's going on in time. Our focus is on eternity. So Daniel is demonstrating this same type of thinking in the midst of this situation. I want you to think of it another way. Think of the fact that Daniel also might be facing a bit of a temptation here to step in and solve the problem. Just think. This is how a lot of Christians would reason. We're so filled with pragmatism. Gee, what wonderful things I could do for God and for my people if I was the third ruler of the empire. Just think, I could free everybody. I could send everybody home. I could just step in and solve all the problems on my own. See, there's a temptation there to, to take advantage of that and sort of an end justifies the means mentality. And see, too often that's what characterizes too much of Christianity. It characterizes church growth. It characterizes evangelism. It characterizes all kinds of gimmicks and programs that churches get involved in. And the focus is on, well, it has a, it's going to produce certain good results, so isn't it worth doing? Well, remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is always wrong. And Daniel understood the principle and so he rejects the temptation because he realized that was not the way God worked. Rewards or temporal rewards were not the issue. The issue was God's plan. So he begins to give the interpretation in verse 18 to the king. He demonstrates uh, politeness to the king and he follows all of the royal protocol. Uh, 
says, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Now, here he is going to uh, address Belshazzar and give him one last gracious opportunity to turn from his arrogance and hostility to God and to turn to God. And he's going to do it by reminding, Nebuchadnezzar, by reminding Belshazzar of what Nebuchadnezzar went through. He's going to remind Belshazzar that arrogance always leads to destruction and the kind of judgment that God brought against Nebuchadnezzar is the same kind of judgment but less severe and it wasn't permanent than God is bringing against Belshazzar. He's giving him one last chance to deal with the arrogance in his soul and recognize the authority of God. It says, The Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Remember back in the uh, interpretation of the statue in Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar was identified as the head of gold. There Daniel said, you reign, you rule, because God placed you in authority. You are the head of gold because God placed you there, not because of who and what you are. So he's reminding Belshazzar that that he is ruling Babylon, not because of who he is, not because of what he's done, but because of what God has in store for him, what God's plan is. Then in verse 19, he goes on to remind Belshazzar of Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. The, God is the, the point is that God is the one in charge. God is the one who raises up. And God is the one who takes away. But Belshazzar couldn't understand verse 18 because he couldn't, or couldn't understand the principle here of God granting sovereignty because... He never correctly understood or interpreted the historical facts that Daniel is mentioning here in verse 19. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up, that is, Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. Daniel points out that, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar became arrogant about the uh, expansion of his empire, and when he became power-hungry, and when he began to lord it over everyone to the point where he had visions of godhood for himself, it was then that God took the kingdom away from him. Verse 21, he had uh, boanthropy, as we saw, and he was driven out from mankind, and his heart was made like the heart of a beast. And he had the mentality of an animal. And he lived with the wild donkeys, and he ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until finally, that's a hard way to learn who's in charge of your life, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he, that he sets over it whomever he wishes. And then Daniel drives the point home in verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. In other words, you have not responded to God's grace in humility. You have continued to maintain your arrogance, thinking that everything came from yourself. And this is Daniel's personal indictment of Belshazzar. 
Belshazzar failed where Nebuchadnezzar succeeded. Belshazzar never understood the gospel, never responded to the gospel, and Belshazzar is in Sheol today. Then we come to verse 23. This is the indictment. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, the gods of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. In other words, he is condemning him for the blasphemous way in which they are abusing the the dishes and glasses, the, the goblets from the temple. Then verse 24, Then the hand was sent from him. This is the hand of judgment, the fingers that wrote on the wall. The fingers were sent from him, and this inscription was written out. And here's the inscription. We'll put it up on the board in um, the way it would appear in the text, and then a transliteration underneath. Mene, mene, tekel, u farsin. Mene, mene, tekel, u farsin. Now, what is the interpretation of these words? What exactly do they mean? Well, the first two words are nouns, mene, mene, and they mean the same thing. They refer to a mina. A mina was a coin, uh, a piece of money. And the tekel refers to the shekel, which was much smaller in weight than the mina. And then the Upharsin was even smaller yet, and that was a half a mina. But each of these nouns had a, has a related verb. And so the meaning, the real meaning of the sentence comes from the verb that's related to it. Mene, mene, that, that word relates to a verb which means to be numbered. A tekel, which in the noun form means a shekel, and the verb form means to be weighed out. And Upharsin, the U is the Hebrew Vav, uh, which is the and. So the word is literally, it's the uh, Aramaic Farsin, which refers to the half mina. And because it was half a mina, it, the verb meant divided. So the significance of the saying was not in its literal meaning, mina, mina, shekel, and half a mina, but number, numbered, weighed, and divided. And so then Daniel understands that, and he is going to apply that to the situation. Now, this is the inscription. The, the word, the Hebrew word for inscription, or the Aramaic word, rather, is katab, which means to write. So it should be translated this writing. And then it says that that was written out, and that's the verb resham, which means to inscribe. So it shouldn't be translated this inscription that was written out, but this writing which was inscribed. It had a permanency to it. It was visible for some time on the wall. And the words, though they weren't difficult to understand because they were written in a uh, noun form instead of the verb form, confused the uh, cabinet department, and they weren't able to understand or interpret exactly what it meant. And so Daniel makes it clear what it means in the next several verses. In verse 26, he says, This is the interpretation, that is, the explanation of the message. Mene, 
which in the verb form means to number. God has numbered your kingdom. That means he's evaluated your kingdom. He's evaluated you, Belshazzar, and he's evaluated the people. And there's no positive volition here. There is no response to the gospel. The people in the Babylonian Empire, which was the shortest of all these empires we're going to study, the people had not had an opportunity to, re- to respond to the, to the gospel tract of Nebuchadnezzar some 23 years earlier, but they had not. They had completely rejected it. So God has evaluated the kingdom and put an end to it. Second, tekel. You have been weighed on the scales, a term for judgment. Further evaluation. You've been weighed on the scales and you're found deficient. You're lacking. There is no righteousness here. And then the final word, farseen, is the uh, noun form. Paris is the root form, meaning to be divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now that last word is interesting because there's a there's a paranomasia there. There's a there's a pun there because the the uh, all you would have is the the noun. Uh, excuse me. All you would have is the consonants, the P, R, and S, and Paris would look the same as Parsi. Parsi is the word for Persians. So there was a little double entendre there to get their attention. They've been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Your kingdom has been divided. God is going to put an end to it, and it is being divided. And that doesn't mean that it is being divided in terms of split split up, but that it is being destroyed. It is being shattered. Your kingdom has been shattered and given over to the Medes and the Persians. This is the announcement of judgment. Apparently, Belshazzar had gathered himself, had a little poise, and decided, and perhaps with a little tongue-in-cheek irony, considering the fact that Daniel's just announced the empire, he thought, well, it's not going to fall tonight, and so he is going to go ahead and reward Daniel. At the very time that he is rewarding Daniel... The armies of, of Cyrus under his commander Gobrias, are also known as Ugbaru, are outside the walls of Babylon and they have built a, they built a dam and they would cause the water to flow off into a, another area, into a lake area, one that had actually been established uh, years earlier when the Babylonians had done the same thing in order to build the canal through the city. And so when they diverted the river, all of a sudden they had a dry walkway to come into the city and they brought their armies under the gates on the riverbed that had been tiled and bricked by the Babylonians themselves. So little did they know, and that's the irony of history, is that years earlier they had diverted the river and then they had tiled the entire riverway so they could have a smooth canal. And so later on, the Persians did the same thing, and now they had a dry riverbed to bring their uh, soldiers in on. And at the very time that this is taking place, you could almost hear the rattle of swords and shields as the Persian army is coming up and entering into the palace to take control. So at that very time, Belshazzar was clothing Daniel with purple, putting the necklace of gold around his neck, And he issues a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom.
Unfortunately, that did not last long because the last verse in the chapter states that Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple. Put a ne- excuse me, that same night, Belshazzar the king was slain. Belshazzar the king was slain. Now, this brings us historically to the end of an important era in Israel's history, or almost to the end of that era. This is in 539, and in just three years, in 536, Cyrus is going to issue a decree for the Jews to go back into the land. He will, this will end, his decree will end the exile. Have a 70-year exile from 586 to 516 marks the period of the temple being down. Temples destroyed in 586, rebuilt in 516. The first exile goes out with Daniel in 605, and the first return occurs in 536. And it is during the period of this exile that we have been studying in Daniel that God taught some vital principles to Israel. The first focuses on the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign and God runs history. And He runs history according to His principles and not according to man's principles. And that even though the Jews looked at God as their God and tried to control Him, God demonstrates to them during the exile that He is sovereign over the Jew and over the Gentile. And it is during that time that they begin to have a bigger picture of God that God controls human history. The second thing that they learn as a result of God's sovereignty is that God is in control even in the midst of chaos. That God is in control even in the midst of chaos. That no matter how horrible things look, no matter how hopeless things look, no matter how disastrous things look, and no matter how out of control things may appear in our own lives at times, God is still in control. Even in the midst of chaos, God is still in control. And this leads to the third point, which has to do with God's revelation, because God is going to reveal to them that there was a future for Israel and that God ultimately would restore Israel to to the land and would bless them as He had promised in the Mosaic Covenant. So these three doctrines are emphasized in these first five chapters of Daniel, as well as a fourth, and that is that there can be real success in a pagan environment based on application of doctrine. That Israel is outside the land, and just as Israel is outside the land, we are, as we're as believers in the church age, we are living in the devil's world. And just as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had real success because they applied doctrine consistently in the midst of a pagan environment, we too as believers living in the pagan environment of a, of a modern Western culture in America and the beginning of the 21st century, we can have success. Even though our kids have to go to a secular school where they are taught all kinds of concepts that are contrary to the Word of God, 
if they, that is countered in the home by the teaching of the parents, then those kids can learn doctrine and they can have the foundation for success in life. So it is those four points that are emphasized again and again to the Jews during the exile. As we wrap up tonight, as we've come to this point in our study of Daniel, I want us to close by looking at a psalm that was written during the exile. And I think this is a psalm that that perhaps has some elements in it that, that can help you when you pray. Pray for our nation in this time of war. Turn with me to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. This is a psalm written by the Jews, by someone during the time of the exile. While they were outside of the land under divine judgment, this is a well-known lament psalm. They are facing a crisis and they are calling out to God in order to resolve and deliver them, resolve the crisis and deliver them. The lament section begins in verses 1 through 4, where the psalmist recalls his Babylonian experience of frustration. Here he's focusing on the adversity he's facing. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. They're in captivity. They've lost their homes. They've lost their families. They've lost everything. Now they're in a foreign land. They're having to, to listen to others in a foreign language. They're missing everything that they love and everything that is familiar to them. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And they focused on all that they had, everything that God had given them in grace, all of their uh, the security that they had, the, the homes that they had, the material possessions that they had, the, the family and friends that perhaps they, uh, they had and who were killed in the assault. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of of us songs. And see, at that point, when they say they hung their harps, we would say they're hanging it up. They're not going to sing anymore. They're going to put away their musical instruments because there's no joy in the soul and they're... As they faced the adversity, they responded with depression and sorrow. And the last thing they want to do is sing, much less sing for their captors, songs about the joys of Zion. So verse 3, the captors were demanding entertainment from the captives. There our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So they're really making fun of them. They're ridiculing them. They're abusing them verbally, and they abuse them physically. You just think of any situation where, in, in a military, after a military conquest, you have uh, prisoners taken away into another land. You can imagine all the various forms of uh, physical, sexual, and psychological abuse that there was. And then, starting in verse four, the psalmist questions how they can ever have joy again. That's, there's a metaphor here. How can we sing the Lord's song isn't simply how can we sing again, but there, there's, how can we sing the Lord's song with joy? How can we praise God again? We've been defeated. We've been destroyed. God has let this horrible thing happen to us, and we are taken to a foreign land. How can we ever trust God again? And that's a theme that runs through these lament psalms again and again, is the, you sense the honesty 
of this, this individual with God. See, see, many of us, we're afraid to really question God when we pray. We're afraid to challenge God when we pray. When we get in hard, hard times, we say, God, how can you let this happen to me? How can, you, how can you claim to love me? How can you claim to be just? How in the world can you let this happen in my life right now? I just don't understand. I'm going to the Word, and I'm looking at these passages, and I can't, I can't correlate what's happening in my life with what your Word says. Help me understand that. See, we have this idea that if we come to God and challenge Him like that, that somehow that's being disrespectful. And yet, again and again and again, the psalmist does that. The writers of Scripture do that. God would rather have us honestly questioning Him out of our frustration and our and our aggravation with life than to come to God with some pusillanimous, weak, wimpy thing. Well, God, I'm going to trust you. You're so great. When we don't mean it, when at the core of our being, we're wondering, how in the world can God let this happen to me? God wants us to be honest, even if it means admitting that we don't understand and we're somewhat frustrated with Him. And that's, that's what's going on. He said, how in the world can we ever praise God again when He's taken us out of the land. You know, it's something like what we see with Naomi in our study on Ruth on Sunday morning. Is she's honest with God about the, the trauma and the travails that she's going through. Job was the same way. She says, how, he, he says in verse 4, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then he, he, he shifts gears starting in verse 5, which begins his focus on doctrine, and he begins to lead towards the ultimate praise section at the, and confidence section at the end of the thing. And that's the point. Is if we're not honest about our frustration with God and our lack of understanding with what's going on, then we're not going to get to the point where we can see how doctrine applies to the situation. And you see that again and again as the psalmist focuses on his heartache, on his difficulty with understanding what's going on in his own life, what's going on in the life of the nation. It's only when he's honest and expressing that frustration that it begins to dawn on him how doctrine applies to the situation. He says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. See, he goes down into the pits, and in verse 4, it's how can I ever have joy again? And he begins to realize at that point that God is eternal and infinite. God's plan goes on. Jerusalem is still there. It will be restored. And he begins to recognize that if I ever forget Jerusalem, then I'm really in trouble. And I will praise Jerusalem above my chief joy at the end of verse 6. And then he focuses on the Lord. This is the first time he specifically addresses the Lord in this psalm. Remember, O Lord. He calls on the Lord to remember his travail, to remember his adversity, to not forget him in the midst of his trauma, and to execute justice. He calls upon God as the supreme judge of heaven and earth to vindicate him as a, in the midst of his circumstances. And this is what's called an, an imprecatory psalm, because he is going to call upon God to curse and judge the enemies. Of Israel, And I want you to watch how he does this, because this is legitimate. When we understand the plan and purposes of God in history, it is still legitimate to call down the curse of God on the enemies of believers and the enemies of Israel. Remember, 
especially in light of this whole terrorist situation today, that Israel is still at the heart of the conflict. One of the reasons that the, the extremists, the fundamentalist um, Muslims are against the United States is because the United States stands behind Israel. They know that, that Israel is just the, fruit, the, the branch of the tree and that if they're going to destroy that branch, they need to destroy the trunk of the tree. And that's the United States and Western Europe, which has basically allowed Israel to be reestablished in the land. And that is an affront to Islam. Islam is on a crusade, and according to the Koran, they are to conquer the world. And the very fact that they have lost ground continuously since the end of the um, 15th century, and now that Israel is back in the land, this is considered by them an, an affront to Allah. And so they must do whatever it takes in order to get Israel out of the land just to restore for, to themselves uh, honor and prestige of Allah. So they are the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God. The God that they worship is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the God of the Christians. And they are in an, uh, enemies of the cross and enemies of the Old Testament. So there is just as much a legitimacy to pray down an imprecatory curse on the radical uh, Muslims as it was for the Jews during the exile to pray down a curse on the Babylonians. And I want you to notice what it says, what the text says. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, it to its very foundation. That is, those among the Babylonians who were crying for the complete destruction of Jerusalem to burn it to the ground. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you. See, he's calling upon God, the Supreme Court of Heaven, to bring vindication and vengeance against Babylon. With the recompense with which you have repaid us. In other words, an eye for an eye. He is going to call down judgment on the Babylonians. Verse 9. How blessed will be the ones, notice this, who seizes and dashes your babies against the rock. That's the final curse here. This is under the writing, under the, you know, C.S. Lewis had problems with this. He said this can't be under the Holy Spirit. He wanted to cut these imprecatory psalms out of the Bible because he didn't understand how they could be from God. But they are, if you put it in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you, and the first word for curse means to treat lightly, I will seriously judge. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so the psalmist here is simply recalling to God's mind the Abrahamic covenant, that you said you would curse those who curse you. Well, look how they have treated us. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They came in and they destroyed our babies. They destroyed our children. They burned Jerusalem to the ground. Now it's time, God, for you, for the Supreme Court of Heaven, to execute judgment against the Babylonians. Kill their babies. Do everything. We ought to be praying that that is a legitimate prayer for believers during a time of war, especially in this kind of a situation, where we are faced with an enemy who is an enemy of Israel and an enemy of believers. And trust me, the radical Islamic fundamentalists view this as a religious war, and they are out to destroy the Christians. Now, in their view, 
Anybody in the West is a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist, if you're a Hindu, if you're a Buddhist. If you're in the United States or in Western Europe, in their viewpoint, you are a Christian. And that is part of their creed is to destroy the Jews on Saturday because they're the people who worship on Saturday and to, de- to destroy the Christians on Sunday because they're the people who worship on Sunday. And that is their motto and that's their creed and that's what they're working off of. And so this is a religious war and we should be justified and we are justified in praying an imprecatory curse down on the enemies of the United States and the enemies of Israel in this war with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to focus on the eternal truth of your word, to realize that that in love you have promised, you have made a covenant with Israel to protect them and to curse those who curse them. And Father, we, we look at history, at how you treated Israel in the Old Testament and how even though you took them out of the land in discipline, in turn, you disciplined those who came against her. You destroyed the Babylonians because of their hostility to Israel, because of their hostility towards you and their rejection of the gospel and their rejection of the truth that was revealed to them. Father, we pray that we might be aware of the fact that there is a God in heaven who judges and that you once one day we too will be evaluated just as the Babylonians were evaluated. Evaluated, And that the issue for us is whether or not we've had faith alone in Christ alone. And secondly, as believers, whether or not we have pursued spiritual maturity to glorify you. Father, we pray that we would accept that challenge to grow and advance to spiritual maturity because we want it said of us at the judgment seat of Christ, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We pray these things that you would help us to... to uh, Recall these to mind and be challenged by the things we've studied tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.